Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. Today, I talk with someone who's been at the forefront of the digital media landscape for decades and also happens to be my boss. Chris Balf is my guest. This is episode 41. From how he got his start as a teenager working for Glenn Beck, to what traits top talent in the media all share, to perception versus reality when it comes to conservative media. We begin with CNN Plus's demise one year later. We've, uh, we've had lots of conversations. I'll go back to tracing when we first started uh, talking. I think it was back in about 2010. Uh, so we've been talking about, but never actually done an official on the record conversation. So this will, this will be interesting. Uh, I wanted to start with um, a story that I think kind of encapsulates a few different things in the media landscape right now. And it is that we are one year from the shutting down of CNN Plus. Uh, this this happened in April of last year. You were quoted in the Washington Post talking about that, you know, this was really, that it existed for like a few weeks. You said it had nothing to do with the success or failure of the CNN Plus launch. It was killed before we could ever know whether it was a successful product or not. Um, but it was really the first step of like the new CNN administration. And, you know, CNN Plus in general felt like this confluence of the old media with the new thought process or maybe where things are going. Um, it's, it's certainly a world, you know, it's particularly kind of like where things are going that, that you've been, you know, deeply enmeshed in for a decade plus at this point. Um, so I wonder, you know, looking back on it, uh, and, but also kind of looking ahead to, to where things are going in the industry, what do you think about CNN plus shutting down, but also really just now a year in, where's the landscape? Where is the the places for growth in this in this environment that feels pretty unsteady for a lot of these more traditional legacy media outlets? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I was I was at the CNN plus launch party. Um, so you know, there was a little bit of um, a feeling in the room of like this is this is ill-fated, or you know, is this is this is the launch party gonna be the closed party, the rat party? Um, you know, I, I think that uh, um, it wasn't as bad of an idea as people now think. You know, I think it's become a little bit of a punchline. But the reality is, like, uh, you know, CNN is a a premium, you know, product. CNN is not trying to get. Uh, I don't think, um, you know, your your average uh, everyday person who you know just wants to know the headlines. And so the idea that um, you know of having higher production quality, higher production value shows. And you know, putting them in a streaming service that's paid—it's not an idea that I dislike. Um, you know, I think you could quibble with a lot of maybe the show choices and the execution of those things. But you know, I, I think that clearly, you know, uh, paid paid content, streaming paid, paid content is is a proven. You know, it's it's not like is this going to work? I mean, right. obviously, it's about long term sustainability of the content spend. Um, but you know, you're talking about services that have hundreds of millions of, of, of subscribers. So, you know, the, directionally it was right. Maybe execution wise, it was wrong for a variety of reasons, but, um, you know, I, I still think that opportunity, um, exists in, in, in paid streaming media. Obviously you can see what the daily wire is, is accomplishing. Um, you know, Fox nation will never tell us their numbers, but I think there's, you know, some, some decent number of subscribers happening there. Um, you know, so I, I think again, right, right idea, wrong, you know, uh, execution maybe, but I mean, clearly, uh, you know, paid streaming services are, are the, still the future of media. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like it was at this time, um, maybe even a little bit later in the process when 
you know, streamers, like we're just throwing money at like massive amounts of money at anything and, and beyond just the news side. I mean, this was, you know, the Netflixes of the world and Amazon's Disney plus and, and, you know, the HBO max. Now everything, it seems is pairing back at least looking at the landscape and trying to be at least a little smarter about this and saying, okay, yes, there's definitely a path for streaming, but how do we do this in a smart way and not just, you know, money is not unlimited in these, in these enterprises now. Um, I mean, do you think that's a symptom of just where things are economy wise, or is it like getting smarter about what the actual business of streaming is? I mean, I think the arms race is still ongoing. So there is a risk to pulling back on those things right now. And companies are doing it reluctantly because, you know, investors in Wall Street is making them. Right. I think, you know, if, if you said to, you know, Ted Sarandos or, or um, you know, David Zaslav, like, would you love to keep spending like you were a couple of years ago for the next few years to really solidify yourselves as one of the big, one of the big, you know, three, whatever that number is going to be, Yeah, you know, Clearly, they would. I think they just have to kind of now say, "Well, the market's changed. Investor expectations are different, and now we have to we have to show restraint." Um, but the, the risk of that is, you know, if somebody is able to show less restraint than others, that they, they may end up getting a head start here, uh, or, or you know, more of a head start than Netflix, you know, had. So, um, I do think, um, you know, there clearly are smarter ways. You know, what's interesting is that they they seem to have all decided that. Um, they all want to serve everyone, right? So you look at, you know, Netflix is is very clearly saying, you know, we, we're not only are we we want to serve everybody in the U.S., but we want to serve everybody globally. And now, you know, HBO Max, which had a premium, you know, product and premium feel to it and premium price to it, is supposedly next week going to, you know, be rebranded for a more mass audience um, to, um, you know, to, to appeal to everybody. And you know, we know Peacock and Paramount strategy, so. You know, I think that while we talked about the sort of news streamers and like a service like Box Station, which could exist with, you know, successfully with 10 million subscribers, um, you know, these these guys are all going for uh, the Grand Slam. And, you know, that that does make it very hard because, you know, how many of those do we need? Right. Yeah. I, 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 you know, all of these conversations about streaming, I have to say, remind me, frankly, of just, you know, the the original thought process that you had behind what was started as GBTV became the blaze, uh, in, became the blaze in June of 2012, but was started as GBTV before that. Um, and in sort of, I, it feels like, you know, thinking about it now very much ahead of the game in, in terms of where the business was going and thinking about ways of reaching people. Obviously it was more niche in the sense of like, we're talking, not talking about, you know, millions of people, but hundreds of thousands of people, but there's, there's a massive business in that and, and being kind of a really first mover, it felt like in that was, was hugely successful. So tell me about uh, what was the thought process behind that? I mean, do you think it was, is that a fair assessment of saying kind of, this is where the business is going and trying to get ahead of that? I mean, we were so early. Definitely, it was it was a, a thought about how how you know where it was going. Um, you know, the 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 origin story around that was you know just being a Red Sox fan based in New York, and so um, you know we had the opportunity to watch to, to watch and experience MLB TV before you know anybody was uh, really doing that at scale and. You know, it was it was a frustrating experience in a lot of ways. You had an old Roku device that you know needed to do it every day, and the, you know there's buffering and there was all that. But you could see like this is what it was. You know, eventually all content was going to be delivered this this way. Um, and so you know when 
um, when Glenn, you know, decided that it was time to to leave Fox News, um, you know, we, we were thinking about options, and this was, you know, we already had a pretty successful streaming business with, uh, you know, with, with a podcast subscription and a few other things, and so the idea of, uh, you know, going direct to consumer for the whole network was, you know, something that we thought was, um, you know, was going to be a cool a cool idea and something that people would eventually come to, and you know, we did partner with MLB Advanced Media on that launch, ended up using the technology that they had built for baseball and being one of the first to really kind of help them customize that for use, you know, with, with other, um, partners and networks, which became a big business for, for them. And, and, uh, you know, ultimately uh, a lot of people ended up using bad tech. Um, but yeah, it, it was, it was clearly, uh, it was so early that we had to send people Roku boxes, like people didn't have connected devices or smart TVs or anything like that. I mean, we picked 50 top, you know, friends and family of, uh, influencers as you might've called them now, but we didn't then. Um, and sent them all like a physical Roku box that we shipped to them with a note from Glenn telling them like, here's how you could watch this. <laughs> I don't think I was in that 50, but I definitely got a Roku box from you guys at the time when I was a reporter. I remember that. Um, yeah. yeah, well, this is sort of an aside, but the the BAM, uh, MLB Advanced Media, what, what, did, what ended up, I mean, they obviously, I remember like there was the WWE partnership, Disney, right? What, what was, how did they end up? I mean, they, they obviously crushed it far beyond just the baseball side of it. Yeah, Bam Tech uh, ended up getting spun out of of the baseball side and then sold to Disney for like three billion dollars or something like that. So they the, the MLB owners ended up getting a nice big paycheck from you know being some of the people who, who created the original um, you know concept around allowing others to to stream and uh, you know it's good for them because baseball owners needed the cash. How has conservative media evolved over the past couple decades, and how much of the toxicity? is perception versus reality. Um, you mentioned Fox Nation, obviously an offshoot of Fox News, um, you know, still a huge powerhouse uh, that, you know, I guess, barring some massive Dominion settlement or something, I, I think they'll be fine either way. Um, but, you know, they're, they're obviously at the top of the game. But then beyond that, there is you know, a real marketplace. Obviously, you know, you, you have experience with Fox when Glenn, uh, Glenn Beck was there. Um, and, you know, there's the quote that, you know, uh, I think it was, was it Roger Ailes who, who, no, someone else, I think said the, you know, the we're serving a niche that's half the country. I mean, it's obviously, there's a huge marketplace for conservative media. You know, you're now involved in it in a couple of capacities, let's say, but what do you think of, I mean, it, are we still in this wild west in a way of things shaking out when it comes to serving it? Is, is there, are there different pipelines for different sorts of uh, a maybe fractured conservative landscape or like, where does it all shake out right now overall in the landscape? Yeah, I think there's, there's a few people that are starting to get some scale, um, outside of Fox. And, you know, that's, that's a good thing because I think, you know, as we've seen in, in traditional media, as you know, companies, the size of Disney feel like they're not big enough and they have to go by Fox or companies, the size of, of Warner brothers and discovery decide they need to merge, you know, the same thing I feel like needs to happen in conservative media where, um, you know, there's too many subscale players and, and not enough, uh, not enough major, you know, um, 800 pound gorillas who can, who can really sit at the table with legacy media and, and have conversations about the, the platforms and all the types of things that we need to have conversations about to, to have a successful business. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's my belief that conservative media media needs to get bigger 
And um, there are a few players that are are succeeding, you know, in doing that um, now. Uh, Rumble is one who's you know had a lot of success lately in um, you know their their spec, you know, going public thing, and and they've been spending money on content. And you know, certainly nobody has missed um, the content spend that's coming out of the Daily Wire. So yeah. there are a few that's that are getting big enough to to be, I think, to. to um, you know, to, to get to a place where they really can be competitive long-term. Yeah. Do you think there's a, a an area where you mentioned like the, you know, the Warner brothers discovery goes and in order to try to fill an area that they think are, they're underserved in goes and tries to scoop up some sort of conservative media. I mean, is that, is it still sort of untouchable in this landscape or is that something that you think could be a, a valuable avenue for them? It's completely untouchable, um, and, and it's it's actually why there are so many. It's the reason why conservative media is like it is, right? And I get this question a lot from reporters, which is like, you know, sometimes reporters call me and say, "Well, you know, how come there's so much, you know, my pillow on Fox or so many gold advertisers or whatever?" It, it's like, well, it's because if there was any mainstream advertiser, you guys would write stories nonstop trying to get that advertiser to fall, right? right. You know, m- mainstream media reporters and media reporters in general become activists when they start writing stories about every advertiser that's advertising on a conservative media show and how dare they do it, you know, not using those words, using more clever words to, to uh, hide um, what they're trying to accomplish. So, you know, I, I think that b- because of the nature of the restriction of, of of advertising and conservative media, and because also it goes even further than advertising, advertising is actually a symptom of the actual problem, which is the creation of a narrative that 50% of the country's views are not just right or wrong, they're toxic, they're, you know, bad to, they're, they're not uh, views that you can hold or espouse, you know, publicly, right? So if you're a company and you want to have, um, you know, you want to celebrate um, any view on the left, you are praised and you are considered to be social justice warriors and you are considered to be uh, you know, uh, virtuous and your employees will, you know, write open letters about how much they love working there. But if you were to, for one moment, take any position, you know, that was that was right of center or, or right of far left, um, you know, then that company starts getting, you know, boycotted and starts, you know, getting all of the things that we know about. So I, I think that because of the creation of an environment in the country where uh, left is right and right is wrong, um, that filters down to an environment where advertisers can't participate in right-wing content or, or right-of-center content, and that uh, filters down to a position where no mainstream media company can own right-of-center content. Um, so, you know, nobody... So, of course, um, you know, the big media companies know that the number one or two most profitable cable network in the country is a conservative network, right? Of course they know know that. Um, and, you know, if you take out ESPN, Fox News channels, you know, it, it, probably even with ESPN, the number one channel on cable, you know, right. 24, but nobody can compete with it because if Disney buys a, 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 a right of center cable channel, people are going to take it out on, on Disney World. They're going to start boycotting Disney World or boycotting ESPN or boycotting any of the other holdings that Marvel movies, you know, God forbid, right? So the risk is too high, even though the reward is also high uh, for anyone to ever try it. This is fascinating. All right. Two things, two questions. First, 
do you, it, has it gotten worse? You know, you've, you've been in the business for, for a while. You've been, you know, involved with like Glenn's Glenn when he was essentially in the CNN environment. Um, I was just actually listening to Keith Olbermann's podcast, uh, which I have to say, I highly recommend to anyone who enjoys watching just a, a psychopath, uh, have a podcast. Um, it, it, he, uh, he was talking about how Michael Savage was on MSNBC not that long ago. I mean, these, these, these networks were experimenting with things that were, were outside of what they would now be able to potentially have even on the air at this point. Tucker Carlson was obviously at MSNBC not that long ago and in this grand scheme of things, 15 years ago. So do you think it's gotten worse in terms of, of what's untouchable and toxic? Let's start there. I think, yes, it's hard to have perspective, you know, on it um, because, you know, you, there's such a recency bias to anything that happens, you know, in the media environment. Um, and it always feels like the worst times ever, even though sometimes it's actually a good time. Um, you know, I do think that um, the, you know, there, there even was a time where, you know, mainstream, not that long ago, where mainstream advertisers could, that Fox News was the exception, that it, Fox News was carved out because, reaches such a massive audience that, um, you know, Ford or GM or someone would say, okay, you know, maybe, maybe I'm going to get a little bit of, um, you know, flack for this, but you know, we need to reach these people, right? These, it's the number one benefit. Yeah. We'll do it. Um, and uh, you know, that time has passed and I think it, it, it is because of, um, you know, the, the level of sophistication of the political, uh, opponents, right. That have, have gotten better and better at, you know, attacking, you know, uh, I hate to blame everything on social media or Twitter, but, you know, the, the ability to, to mobilize a Twitter mob to uh, put a run on Silicon Valley Bank is the same thing that you can do um, to, to mobilize a Twitter mob to put a run on, you know, a, a GM commercial that ran on Fox News Channel. So, um, you know, I, I think that, that that reactionary component is uh, that ganging up a Twitter mob, however you want to define it, is, is um, you know, is bad for, uh, the ability of of um, really any media to get involved in anything that's outside of the current you know popular narrative or groupthink. Right, right, yeah. Anything that's that's they're not even necessarily politically. It's just whatever's not to, you know toxic enough. But the other, I guess, my other question is, yeah, okay. So Twitter mobs and all that. Like, do you think it's perception or reality in, in the sense of like if ABC Disney buys some not even conservative like a, a right of center type type uh you know network causes the twitter mob you know the the activists to galvanize with the the reporters who you know pretend they're doing reports but are actually you know activist journalists um does that then translate to the bottom line getting hurt you know to real people that are not overly politically spun actually taking action in that sense or is it more perception I think they're, they're, the ability to withstand it does, no, does not um, exist any longer. So I think the, the hypothetical question is: if you could withstand it, if you could, if you could wait out the initial, you know, uh, people who are mad, and then they organize, and then the Twitter people come after you for for forty eight hours, then the the media writes about it for you know a week, right? And then they, they're, you know, not getting results. So they go back to the Twitter people and they find something, you know, then they're, then they're going to go, okay, well, this isn't working. Let's, um, 
go after them for something else. Like, let's, you know, it's my belief that ultimately the media can destroy anyone or anything, you know, that there, that no, no, there's no perfect person and there's no perfect company. And if you look deep enough, hard enough for long enough, ask enough people about someone or something, they're toast. So, uh, you know, if, if they go, they're going to go all the way. And if that doesn't work, they're going to start finding other, other, you know, avenues. If you could make it past all that, maybe you've got a shot, but there is no, you know, the, the corporate executive that has the, um, wherewithal, uh, they're standing with their, their press, uh, and reporters and employees and, um, investors and, and everybody to get through that. That is, you know, I can count them on one hand, right? It's, it's yeah. a very, very small group of people who would have that, that level of capital. Yeah. And I guess courage on some level also. Um, oh, it kind of leads me to another thing. So um, I started a, a publication back in 2015 on Medium called Autonomous. You wrote a column uh, there, a guest column. It was the, the day the publication launched. And it was about why publishers should give into Facebook for now. Facebook was kind of like the, the big hot topic at the time. You could probably insert in pretty much whatever else, you know, right now. But that, especially in the sense of like, and I would say media that is, you know, maybe not welcome in certain places, whether it's, let's just say, you know, the Apple podcast store or, or even, you know, some people on the right might say YouTube, you know, where do you, where do you fall on what you would advise brands, you know, publishers, outlets, when it comes to places that they may not be welcome, but like, you know, using the tools that are out there despite that versus, you know, going outside of that, like, like to a rumble or those sorts of outlets. Yeah. I mean, my view is that you want to be on every platform that you can be allowed to be on, right? That you want to be as big as you possibly can be, that you want to be as mainstream as you possibly can be. And one of the, one example of that is, you know, certainly YouTube, right? I'm, I'm not a believer in folding up shop on YouTube and, and going all in on rumble. YouTube has, you know, uh, 6 trillion daily active users, whatever the number is, right? Everybody on earth and it's growing still. And so, you know, turning that audience off is, you know, mostly to your own detriment. There are obviously exceptions, right? Dan Bongino, he owns part of it. You know, he can, can make a big stink about going off YouTube and going on to Rumble. There, there may be strategic reasons to do that. But um, for the most part, being everywhere is 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 a big part of my model. The, the other thing is, um, the other place that I think is an example of that is publishing. Um, I'm still a believer that Simon & Schuster and, you know, the other big publishers are the most successful when it comes to having your book get into Walmart or having your book get into, you know, bookstores in the airport and other places and using their co-op and their leverage and their, all the other things. So if you're a conservative and you can get a, a book deal with a major publisher versus, say, publishing it yourself on Amazon, you should, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, that that's, um, you know, another example I would say is we, we've run a television network called The First TV, and we recently got added to DirecTV. Um, you know, that's, some people would say, DirecTV is hostile to conservative views, or DirecTV is, you know, it's, it's a mainstream media company. Of course, it's a mainstream media company. And do I think for a minute that they're sitting there going, you know, we really want to have, um, you know, uh, more conservative, you know, views. We, we you know, we, we got to get a hundred conservative network. Of course not. But 
I, th I think that um, for us, it's been great, you know, for us to be involved in, you know, in 13 million homes and for the shows to be exposed to a, a you know, a mass platform, you know, of course, that, that's better than, um, you know, just uh, streaming on our website. Coming up, the state of the podcast business and the traits that all top talent Chris has worked with, and there are many, share. That's next. But first... One of the most ethically compromised areas for the corporate media in the weeks, months, and years ahead will be the coverage of the social media platform, TikTok. It's important for consumers of content to understand what's not being said and the barriers to clear-eyed reporting that's currently being navigated. On a big scale, there's the China connection, the CCP's direct involvement in the social platform. Many large media organizations have a China connection themselves, overtly or passively. Then there's the fact that TikTok is part of the marketing and social strategy at these large organizations. The Washington Post has several TikTok-only reporters. Plus, of course, there's the fact that many young reporters, like young people in general, enjoy using TikTok incessantly, like Taylor Lorenz, also at the Washington Post. Two recent articles shed big-picture light on the other challenges. Politico pointed out how the campaign to save TikTok has been years in the making, as the company has been preparing for this coming battle with the government for years. TikTok is cozy with Anita Dunn and her PR firm, while Dunn is a part of the Biden administration. Meanwhile, the Wall Street Journal looked at how other top PR spinsters like Jim Messina and David Plouffe from the Hillary and Obama teams are part of the TikTok efforts as well. Of course, Dunn, Messina, and Plouffe are all cozy with the Acela media in D.C. too. This whole exercise played out in public recently during the congressional hearings when the TikTok CEO was grilled by both sides of the aisle. Washington Post tech reporter Drew Harwell is consistently one of the most friendly reporters for the TikTok spin, and he displayed that even before he began live tweeting the hearings, noting his lunch with the CEO, who lamented the real shame it would be to lose U.S. voices on the platform. What followed was as instructive as it was embarrassing. His thread attacking Republicans, attacking Facebook, offering defense after defense of the freedom TikTok users have to post what they want. At one point, he tweeted about a congressman saying that the former NBA player Enos Cantor Freedom had been banned on TikTok. Drew's knee-jerk instinct was to go into defense mode once again. Not clear what he's talking about, he tweeted. He has 362,000 TikTok followers and posts videos there critical of the Chinese government all the time. A few days later, Harwell took a break from tweeting incessantly to write a story. The headline? TikTok admits it banned former NBA player critical of China. It's one of the great things about Twitter. Members of the press treat it like it's their diary, and yet it's public for all to see. Harwell defended his actions when I pressed him about it on Twitter. I contacted him and the company to understand what was happening. Then I wrote a news story about it, which is something we do called reporting, he said. Sure, he reported the story after the world could see his instinct was to run cover for the CCP-owned social platform he happens to do PR work for while moonlighting as an objective tech journalist. But this is the problem for journalists like Harwell and, more significantly, newsrooms like the Washington Post. I don't know if TikTok should be banned in the United States. I'm generally for more freedom, not less. But the China element here can't be ignored. And the conflicts of interests are so immense among the corporate press entities they are severely compromised in ways everyone in the audience needs to understand while this story gets reported out. The Washington Post would be helped to find reporters who don't brag about their lunch with TikTok CEO, or at the very least, tweet a lot less 
while they do the actual work. More with Chris coming up, but I want to tell you that the full Fourth Watch podcast is available exclusively to paid subscribers on Substack. Yes, Fourth Watch has gone independent in 2023. Paid subscribers get a whole bunch of extra content from original deep dive columns called Rabbit Hole to the full podcasts each episode. Check it out for just five bucks a month or $50 for a year at fourthwatch.media. Now back to Chris Balf. I'm, well, and also, I guess let's go to the another another platform, which is podcast. Um, it's an area that you know you've you've been involved in for a very long time, um, and uh, I have also. And it's it's one of the areas I would say that's it's shockingly not as different as I maybe would have thought it would be. Um, you know, over the last. 10 plus years, like the, you know, with the Spotify has gotten more involved on some capacity, they're, you know, buying up some, but for the most part, it doesn't feel like a lot has changed there. And, and I wonder like where you see, obviously the business has, has grown, you know, we see the numbers of, of revenue when it comes to podcasts, certainly the number of podcasts has exploded, but the actual, like the top tier podcasts, you know, the, the numbers are slowly growing, revenue slowly growing. I mean, are we, the boom maybe that was predicted has kind of slowed a little bit. Where, where do you think it stands right now, 2023? Yeah, I mean, it's a great business. You know, I love the podcast business. I think it's it's opened up, you know, what we're calling podcasts are really shows. And, yeah. um, you know, there's, there's um, you know, video components to, to, to many of them. You know, a lot of podcasts that we're working with are making as much money on on YouTube and, and you know, through video simulcasts and elsewhere as they are in, in audio. So, you know, um, podcasting has grown both um, in the, you know, quote unquote pivot to video in the, you know, successful, you know, monetization through platforms that have been built out by companies like iHeart and, and Spotify. Um, and, you know, I think we're going to look back and say that this was a golden age to be able to launch something inexpensively and get a big audience. You know, I think if you look forward 10 years, I, I, I always feel like YouTube is that way as well. Like, YouTube is so big and so successful. You know, I remember they did that campaign at one point where you drive around and see these billboards of like somebody you've never heard of has 40 million followers or something like that. <laughs> um, it's its own planet. And, and I think that um, as hard as it is to, you know, launch a new show today and to, you know, get to a million, you know, subscribers on YouTube or, you know, half a million downloads of your podcast as hard as that is today. In five or 10 years, it's going to be exponentially harder because those platforms are going to continue to grow and get more competitive. Big money is going to flow into them from, from major companies. Um, so it's a great time to be in the podcasting business. It's a great time to launch a podcast or a show. Uh, it's a great time to try to promote it, obviously harder than it was three years ago or five years ago to grow it, but um, it will be harder uh, five years from now. Um, you know, I think to your point about how it's been, how it hasn't changed, you know, ultimately the reason is because Apple deems it to be uh, an irrelevant, you know, <laughs> amount of right. money to them, you know, that the $2 billion industry, if they were able to capture a 100% market share of it, nobody would notice when they read the next earnings report for Apple, right? So it's just such a big company that plays an outsized role in a business that they clearly don't care about. And it's just, you know, um, irrelevant on its face, right? It doesn't take much to look at the numbers of the podcast industry and say, um, you know, they would rather figure out how to sell another hundred thousand phones or whatever and, and, and make that money. So, uh, I, I think that's good. I'm, I'm happy that they've been, you know, laissez faire about it, that they've allowed, you know, they've continued to develop and it's, you know, the podcast apps better than it was, but it's not, they haven't tried to, um, undo RSS or, you know, create their own formats or, or insert their own ads or anything like that. And, uh, I think that's, that's allowed, you know, 
um, a more free and open environment. If they had taken a heavier hand the way Spotify has, maybe the industry would be $5 billion and not two. So I don't think it's necessarily clear that them being as affairs is always, you know, only good and not bad, but it's been certainly, it's been good for the independent spirit of it. Yeah. That's interesting. So yeah, I mean, as you, as you think more people you know, every year start listening to podcasts, it's, it actually, you know, will be getting progressively harder to, to grow a big audience if you're a fully independent creator in that, in that way than it is right now. Yeah. And even the networks, I think, you know, the, there's a big difference for, for how hard it is to launch a show for a big network today than it was two years ago. Yeah. Competition is, is is intense. When you listen to podcasts, you hear so many promos for other podcasts. You know, you're like, if I just listen to every podcast that this podcast told me to listen to, I would, you know, I would listen to podcasts for the next two weeks. So, you know, I, I think that there's um yeah, it, it's it's gonna be harder and harder to to grow new shows. And so as hard as it is now, you know, now's the time. Interesting. Um, I want to ask you kind of about your career. You know, you started at a, at a fascinating, you know, run, uh, very rapid rise to, uh, uh, to success. But uh, before we get to sort of the beginning, I want to just sort of look at, I, I always think about the people that I've worked with, like at the very, very, very top, um, kind of like, I, I describe them as like unicorns, like media unicorns, people that are singular, the, it's like an MBA term, you know, Giannis, Embiid, Luca, they're like, they're single, single people. And, um, and you've certainly had the opportunity to, to cross paths with, with a lot of those. And, and I wonder what you sort of lessons there might be, or, or things that you've learned that say, you know, here are some, some things that can, that are maybe are, are through lines between the top, top talent, how people get to the very, very top of the game, totally unique, distinguished individuals, but, but traits that they may have that separate them from everyone else that make them so successful. Yeah. I mean, there's two things that I think that everybody, you know, who's at that a plus list, you know, that I've worked with, with have, and, uh, they're not going to be things that are going to shock you. They're, they're not going to, you're not going to be, Oh my God, you know, he gave me this wisdom that no one's ever given me before. I, I think there are things that are, um, you know, they're, they're just easier said than done things. Um, one is, uh, originality, you know, uniqueness, um, the people who have have reached that stratosphere, you know, Glenn Beck. There's nobody. There's no other Glenn Beck, right? There's nobody else. Everything he does, every you know, time he wakes up in the morning, he has a thought that no one in the history has ever had, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there's there is um, that's that's um, a a skill or a trait or a talent that people really value is having is is hearing from someone that has interesting different unique original creative thoughts in their head every morning um and it's it's um you know obviously uh our our um you know mutual um you know person that we work with megan kelly superstar is in that category right every morning she wakes up and she has a take on something that's like wow um so, you know, and, and I would point to, you know, really all of the people that I work with now um, that have that, you know, uh, another one is Jesse Kelly, who, who you know, if you read his Twitter feed, you, you might be terrified by it, but you <laughs> might also realize that he has something really interesting, really different, really unique to say. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he's, he is able to, he, he's not just reacting to whatever happened in the news today. He is creating the news, which is another yeah. thing that Glenn was incredible at and that Megan is incredible at. 
Um, and Tucker is another one I would say right now is at the top of, of, of the game of people who are able to, you know, create the news. The second thing, even more um, obnoxious observation is that they all work really, really, really hard. You know, that these are people who Nancy Grace is a great example of one of our clients who, I mean, she works so hard, you know, and, and she um, is uh, no, nothing's given to her. You know, she doesn't, she doesn't just, you know, sit around and wait for the phone to ring. She's saying to her team every day, let's book this person. Let's book this person. Let's, you know, talk about this case. She researches these cases like crazy. So, that whatever a person asks her about it, she knows that she has a, a view on it. And of course, she's original and goes back to my point one. She's original. She's creative. She's all right. those things. But, um, you know, people, I, I mean, you know, Glenn worked himself, you know, half to death when we were working together. Um, all, all of these people have an, an incredible work ethic. And that's and that's what it takes to get to the top. You know, incredible work ethic plus an, origi an originality, a, uh, a uniqueness that, that is singular. Yeah, it is. It is funny. Like I, I feel like in other industries, maybe like you know, business or um, you know, entertainment. You know, how do you become like the biggest movie star? Originality probably still crosses over, but not necessarily that work ethic in the way that it does in the media. Like the people that are at the very top of the game, like seem to they can relax a little bit, and they, but like it's not that way. Like, there's something innate in the people that are these huge media stars that's like they just want to then work even more and harder, and and you better be along for that ride. It's, it's it is interesting. Yeah, and it's something about our business too, right? All these people have to do you know, five days a week, but maybe, but really you're talking about some, in some cases, you know, take Jesse Kelly, Jesse Kelly's doing three hour national radio show on 200 radio stations. That's almost impossible to do that. Well, then he's doing a custom hour every day for WR in New York city, just about New York still. Then he's doing an hour on the first TV every day. So he's doing five hours a day of television or of, you know, of, of content. Yeah. Crazy. Then he's writing for Twitter. He's writing a book. He's, you know, doing videos for all these other platforms. It's like, and people go, oh my gosh, he's had this stratospheric, you know, rise. And he has, he's been, you know, come from nowhere to be, you know, insanely successful in the last two years, but it's because he's working his ass off, you know? Right. Um, so it's, it's, uh, there's, it, you know, the, the content demands are such of, of this business that you can't, uh, not that, uh, you know, I'm not implying that actors don't work hard. I don't know if they do or, or don't, cause I don't know them well enough, but you know, <laughs> you certainly could go film a movie, work really hard for 26 weeks and then go take a few, you know, take a oh, month yeah. off, few months off. You know, none of our, none of our folks can, you know, take two months off. No, no, they, they can't take the foot off the gas and they just, I don't know. They, they don't want to. They, they move and take a month off. That's pretty, I, I was, that's, that's, Oh yeah. That's, that's right. That's right. It's a, it's, a, it's a good mental health break. Um, all right. Let me ask you before we get to kind of the end here, um, your own start and, and how, how you got it. Because I, I know you've told me the story way back, I think, when we first met. Um, but I think it's really an interesting one for people to understand. Talk about working hard and and having a vision and, and making it happen for yourself. But if you, if you don't mind kind of tracing the roots of how you got involved in, in this business. Yeah. So, well, all going all the way back, you know, I was a, a, a fan of Glenn Beck's radio program when he was doing a, a, a morning zoo style show in, uh, in New Haven, Connecticut on KC 101. And, um, my, you know, I was 16 and, um, he was, uh, you know, I was also was an, in, uh, a technology geek and, you know, I love technology and, and I'm super you know into it. And I was building websites in when I was 16. So I don't know. <laughs> 1995 or something like that. Right. Um, 
And, uh, you know, so I was a fan of Glenn. So I think I was sort of a ruse to figure out how to meet him and, you know, get a chance to, to, uh, to, to meet somebody who I admired. I um, took a drive to a, a coffee shop in Hamden, Connecticut called The Daily Grind, where he was doing a remote. I showed up right at 10 o'clock because I knew that if he pulled, you know, if I showed up at 9.50, he would pull me on the air for the last break and make fun of the geeky kid who showed up and offered to build him a website. And I did. I offered to build him a website. And he took a, you know, on a coffee napkin, a Sharpie, and he wrote his home phone number on it, handed it to me. And he said, you know, give me a call. So, um, you know, I started doing stuff for him on, on, on the website. We did like really crazy. Like we, I, I held the webcam and we streamed a live radio show of his in like 1996, you know, like wow. <laughs> doing this on a, on a website. Um, and then, um, you know, I, I went to, uh, Yukon briefly. I dropped out of Yukon. I worked for Accenture, um, and, uh, in, in the Boston office and so they were creating something called dot-com launch centers in the early days of, of startup mania where everybody dot-com bubble one, everybody was trying to figure out how to start new companies, uh, in the, in the internet space. And I had the, even though I dropped out of college, I had a lot of internet experience. So worked on some clients there. And then I got a call from Glenn in, uh, 2001. Um, and he was down in Florida and I was up in Boston and he said, um, you know, I've been given this opportunity to go, you know, nationwide and do talk radio from 9am to noon Eastern time. And, um, you know, I, I want to talk about it. I, I came down, I went down to Tampa and, and, and met him and, you know, he, he laid out a vision. He said, I don't want to, you know, people told me that I, I could be the next, um, Rush Limbaugh, but I don't want to be the next Rush Limbaugh. I want to be the next over. I want to have a, you know, stage shows and I want to have an internet business. And I want to have, um, you know, books and ma a magazine, all these other things. And so, you know, fresh out of my, uh, Accenture management training. I went to the whiteboard and I said, you know, here's how you do it. Do this first and do this forge first. You know, like what well, I knew and I was 21, how to do this. Right. <laughs> um, and, and he was like, Oh, well, why don't you, why don't you come and, and, you know, work for me? And I, I was like, well, you know, first of all, I've got a job at, you know, Accenture as a college dropout. So that's, Good job, that's yeah. a job paying well. And, um, you know, probably not going to get it if I leave. And secondly, um, you know, he was an unproven, you know, he was a very successful afternoon, you know, radio host in Tampa, but it wasn't clear that and obvious that, that this was going to work, that he was going to be as, you know, as big as he ultimately became. So, um, but I did, I dropped out of, I dropped out of, you know, I moved, moved from Boston to Philly and left Accenture. And as I always say, I, you know, called my mom and told her that her college dropout son was leaving a, a major consulting company and going to work for a radio DJ that she had never heard of. And she cried. Um, but, uh, you know, it was an incredible decision, you know, I don't know, but that's the best decision of my life, but probably right up there because, um, it, uh, it, it, uh, put me in this, in this business, put me in the career, put me around Glenn for, you know, 2001 to 2014. So 13 or 14 years. Um, that we were able to work together and, um, you know, build that business, that build that business up. So it was, uh, it was, it was awesome. Yeah. That's incredible. Cause I mean, really like when you say build that business up, I mean, start from people that think about starting from scratch, you know, it's just the barstool story has been, been out there a lot as, you know, Dave cashed in his chips 20 years, you know, from, from handing out the newspapers that, you know, the, the rise of, of, of what you and Glenn built together there from, yeah, 2001 to, really, I mean, I would say 2011, let's just, you know, 2011, 2012 going off and, and launching the blaze and, and GBTV was incredible. So amazing story.
Yeah, it was, it was a crazy time. I think, you know, I don't ever appreciate it while you're going through it necessarily, but I think, you know, what's cool now is, um, you know, getting to work with talent and, you know, using the experience that we've, we've had both with Glenn and since to, you know, to, to bring, um, to deliver, you know, results for them. But I think there's also something, and, and that's so fun, but, um, doing something the first time, which was what we were doing every single day or every week or every month with, with Glenn and the blaze. There's something really unique about that. It's like, we're going to go and do a deal with CNN. You know, what's that? Like, what's, right. what's that contract look like? How, what are the parameters of that negotiation? How are we going to, you know, sit in a room as a, you know, I don't know, you punk kid, whatever age and negotiate with, you know, the president of CNN or whatever. So um, now I'm, um, I'm older and wiser and, uh, can use those experiences to benefit, you know, uh, other talent. And that's also fun. You know, I love working with Jesse and, um, you know, again, the, doing these things that, you know, I think that we have unique insights into, um, and how, how to do them and do them well. Um, but you know, the other thing is also like, it starts with incredible talent, like yeah. one, one's a singular talent, Jesse, I think is too. And, and Megan and, you know, lots of the folks that we work with. So, um, you know, none of it ha- i can work really hard but if if i'm you know don't have somebody that's that's at that level there's there's always going to be a cap more with chris including the fourth watch lightning round on his time working with and at fox news available for paid subscribers of fourth watch on substack go to fourthwatch.media to try it thanks so much to chris balf find out more about him and his organization at red seat ventures Com. Remember, Fourth Watch is not just a podcast, it's also a newsletter. Subscribe for free now at fourthwatch.media. Join me, let's build a better media together. If you like the music in the show as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper. That's Super Duper Music on Instagram. Got some new songs over there that are great. This song is far from falling. Download it wherever you get your music. You can download, follow, like, rate, review to this podcast, the Fourth Watch Podcast, at Apple, Spotify, Substack, wherever you get your podcasts. Back soon. Stay safe. Talk to you then. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.